Part two of Vices Are Not Crimes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vices Are Not Crimes by Lysander Spooner. Part two. Thirteen. We can now see how simple, easy, and reasonable a matter is a government for the punishment of crimes as compared with one for the punishment of vices. Crimes are few, and easily distinguished from all other acts. And mankind are generally agreed as to what acts are crimes, whereas vices are innumerable, and no two persons are agreed, except in comparatively few cases, as to what are vices. Furthermore, everybody wishes to be protected in his person and property against the aggressions of other men. But nobody wishes to be protected, either in his person or property, against himself, because it is contrary to the fundamental laws of human nature itself that any one should wish to harm himself. He only wishes to promote his own happiness, and to be his own judge as to what will promote, and does promote, his own happiness. This is what every one wants, and has a right to as a human being. And though we all make many mistakes, and necessarily must make them, from the imperfection of our knowledge, yet these mistakes are no argument against the right, because they all tend to give us the very knowledge we need and are in pursuit of, and can get in no other way. The object aimed at in the punishment of crimes, therefore, is not only wholly different from, but is directly opposed to, that aimed at the punishment of vices. The object aimed at in the punishment of crimes is to secure to each and every man alike the fullest liberty he can possibly have, consistently with the equal rights of others, to pursue his own happiness, under the guidance of his own judgment, and by the use of his own property. On the other hand, the object aimed at in the punishment of vices is to deprive every man of his natural right and liberty to pursue his own happiness, under the guidance of his own judgment, and by the use of his own property. These two objects, then, are directly opposed to each other, they are as directly opposed to each other as a light and darkness, or as truth and falsehood, or as liberty and slavery. They are utterly incompatible with each other, and to suppose the two to be embraced in one and the same government is an absurdity, an impossibility. It is to suppose the objects of a government to be to commit crimes, and to prevent crimes, to destroy individual liberty, and to secure individual liberty. 14. Finally, on this point of individual liberty, every man must necessarily judge and determine for himself as to what is conducive and necessary to, and what is destructive of, his own well-being, because if he omits to perform this task for himself, nobody else can perform it for him and nobody else will even attempt to perform it for him, except in very few cases. Popes and priests and kings will assume to perform it for him in certain cases, if permitted to do so, but they will in general perform it only in so far as they can minister to their own vices and crimes by doing it. 
they will in general perform it only in so far as they can make him their fool and their slave. Parents, with better motives, no doubt, than the others, too often attempt the same work. But in so far as they practice coercion, or restrain a child from anything not really and seriously dangerous to himself, they do him a harm rather than a good. It is a law of nature that to get knowledge, and to incorporate that knowledge into his own being, each individual must get it for himself. Nobody, not even his parents, can tell him the nature of fire, so he will really know it. He must experiment with it and be burnt by it before he can know. Nature knows a thousand times better than any parent what she designs each individual for, what knowledge he requires, and how he must get it. She knows that her own processes for communicating that knowledge are not only the best, but the only ones that can be effectual. The attempts of parents to make their children virtuous are generally little else than attempts to keep them in ignorance of vice. They are little else than attempts to teach their children to know and prefer truth by keeping them in ignorance of falsehood. They are little else than attempts to make them seek and appreciate health by keeping them in ignorance of disease and of everything that will cause disease. They are little else than attempts to make their children love the light by keeping them in ignorance of darkness. In short, they are little else than attempts to make their children happy by keeping them in ignorance of everything that causes them unhappiness. In so far as parents can really aid their children in the latter search after happiness by simply giving them the results of theirs, the parents' own reason and experience, it is all very well, and is a natural and appropriate duty. But to practice coercion in matters of which the children are reasonably competent to judge for themselves is only an attempt to keep them in ignorance. And this is as much a tyranny, and as much a violation of the children's right to acquire knowledge for themselves, and such knowledge as they desire, as is the same coercion when practised upon older persons. Such coercion, practised upon children, is a denial of their right to develop faculties that nature has given them, and to be what nature designs them to be. It is a denial of their right to themselves, and to the use of their own powers. It is a denial of their right to acquire the most valuable of all knowledge, to wit, the knowledge that nature, the great teacher, stands ready to impart to them. The results of such coercion are not to make the children wise or virtuous, but to make them ignorant and consequently weak and vicious, and to perpetuate through them from age to age the ignorance, the superstitions, the vices and crimes of the parents. This is proved by every page of the world's history. Those who hold opinions opposite to these are those whose false and vicious theologies or whose own vicious general ideas, have taught them that the human race are naturally given to evil rather than to good, to the false rather than to the true, that mankind do not naturally turn their eyes to the light, that they love darkness rather than light, and they find their happiness only in those things that tend to their misery. 15. But these men, who claim that government shall use its power to prevent vice, will say, or are in the habit of saying, 
who acknowledged the right of an individual to seek his own happiness in his own way, and consequently to be as vicious as he please. We only claim that the government shall prohibit the sale to him of those articles by which he ministers to his vice. The answer to this is that the simple sale of any article whatever, independently of the use that is to be made of that article, is legally a perfectly innocent act. The quality of the act of sale depends wholly upon the quality of the use for which the thing is sold. If the use of anything is virtuous and lawful, then the sale of it for that purpose is virtuous and lawful. If the use is vicious, then the sale of it for that use is vicious. If the use is criminal, then the sale of it for that use is criminal. The seller is, at most, only an accomplice in the use that is to be made of the article sold, whether the use be virtuous, vicious, or criminal. When the use is criminal, the seller is an accomplice in the crime, and punishable as such. But where the use is only vicious, the seller is only an accomplice in the vice, and is not punishable. 16. But it will be asked, is there no right on the part of government to arrest the progress of those who are bent on self-destruction? The answer is that government has no rights whatever in the matter, so long as these so-called vicious persons remain sane, compass mentis, capable of exercising reasonable discretion and self-control. Because so long as they do remain sane, they must be allowed to judge and decide for themselves whether their so-called vices really are vices, whether they really are leading them to destruction, and whether on the whole they will go there or not. When they shall become insane, non-compass mentis, incapable of reasonable discretion or self-control, their friends or neighbours or the government must take care of them, and protect them from harm, and against all persons who would do them harm, in the same way as if their insanity had come upon them from any other cause than their supposed vices. But because a man is supposed by his neighbours to be on the way to self-destruction from his vices, it does not therefore follow that he is insane, non-compass mentis, incapable of reasonable discretion and self-control, within the legal meaning of these terms. Men and women may be addicted to very gross vices, and to a great many of them, such as gluttony, drunkenness, prostitution, gambling, prize-fighting, tobacco-chewing, smoking and snuffing, opium-eating, corset-wearing, idleness, waste of property, avarice, hypocrisy, etc., etc., and still be sane, compass mentis, capable of reasonable discretion and self-control, within the meaning of the law. And so long as they are sane, they must be permitted to control themselves and their property, and to be their own judges as to where their vices will finally lead them. It may be hoped by the lookers-on in each individual case that the vicious person will see the end to which he is tending, and be induced to turn back. But if he chooses to go on to what other men call destruction, he must be permitted to do so and all that can be said of him, so far as this life is concerned, is that he made a great mistake in his search after happiness, and that others will do well to take warning by his fate. As to what may be his condition in another life, that is a theological question, 
with which the law in this world has no more to do than it has with any other theological question touching men's condition in a future life. If it be asked how the question of a vicious man's sanity or insanity is to be determined, the answer is that it is to be determined by the same kinds of evidence as in the sanity or insanity of those who are called virtuous, and not otherwise. That is, by the same kinds of evidence by which the legal tribunals determine whether a man should be sent to an asylum for lunatics, or whether he is competent to make a will, or otherwise dispose of his property. Any doubt must weigh in favour of his sanity, as in all other cases, and not of his insanity. If a person really does become insane, non-compass mentis, incapable of reasonable discretion or self-control, it is then a crime on the part of other men to give him or sell to him the means of self-injury. Footnote. To give an insane man a knife or any other weapon, or a thing by which he is likely to injure himself, is a crime. End of footnote. There are no crimes more easily punished, no cases in which juries would be more ready to convict, than those where a sane person should sell or give to an insane one any article by which the latter was likely to injure himself. 17. But it will be said that some men are made by their vices dangerous to other persons that a drunkard, for example, is sometimes quarrelsome and dangerous towards his family or others. And it will be asked, has the law nothing to do in such a case? The answer is, that if, either from drunkenness or any other cause, a man be really dangerous, either to his family or to other persons, not only himself may be rightfully restrained, so far as the safety of other persons requires, but all other persons, who know or have reasonable grounds to believe him dangerous, may also be restrained from selling him or giving to him anything that they have reason to suppose will make him dangerous. But because one man becomes quarrelsome and dangerous after drinking spiritous liquors, and because it is a crime to give or sell liquor to such a man, it does not follow at all that it is a crime to sell liquors to the hundreds and thousands of other persons who are not made quarrelsome or dangerous by drinking them. Before a man can be convicted of crime in selling liquor to a dangerous man, it must be shown that the particular man to whom the liquor was sold was dangerous, and also that the seller knew, or had reasonable grounds to suppose, that the man would be made dangerous by drinking it. The presumption of law is, in all cases, that the sale is innocent, and that the burden of proving it criminal, in any particular case, rests upon the government. And that particular case must be proved criminal independently of all others. Subject to these principles, there is no difficulty convincing and punishing men for the sale or gift of any article to a man who is made dangerous to others by the use of it. 18. But it is often said that some vices are nuisances, public or private, and that nuisances can be abated and punished. It is true that anything that is really and legally a nuisance, either public or private, can be abated and punished. But it is not true that the mere private vices of one man are, in any legal sense, nuisances to another man or to the public. 
no act of one person can be a nuisance to another, unless it in some way obstructs or interferes with that other's safe and quiet use or enjoyment of what is rightfully his own. Whoever obstructs a public highway is a nuisance, and may be abated and punished. But a hotel where liquors are sold, a liquor store, or even a grog-shop, so called, no more obstructs a public highway than does a dry-goods store, a jewellery store, or a butcher's shop. Whatever poisons the air, or makes it either offensive or unhealthy, is a nuisance. But neither a hotel, nor a liquor store, nor a grog-shop poisons the air or makes it offensive or unhealthy to outside persons. Whatever obstructs the light to which a man is legally entitled is a nuisance. But neither a hotel, nor a liquor store, nor a grog shop obstructs anybody's light except in cases where a church, a schoolhouse, or a dwelling-house would have equally obstructed it. On this grounds, therefore, the former are no more, or no less, nuisances than the latter would be. Some people are in the habit of saying that a liquor shop is dangerous, in the same way that gunpowder is dangerous. But there is no analogy between the two cases. Gunpowder is liable to be exploded by accident, and especially by such fires as often occur in cities. For this reason it is dangerous to persons and properties in its immediate vicinity. But liquors are not liable to be thus exploded, and therefore are not dangerous nuisances, in any such sense as is gunpowder in cities. But it is said again that drinking places are frequently filled with noisy and boisterous men, who disturb the quiet of the neighbourhood and the sleep and rest of the neighbours. This may be true occasionally, though not very frequently. But whenever, in any case, it is true, the nuisance may be abated by the punishment of the proprietor and his customers, and, if need be, by shutting up the place. But an assembly of noisy drinkers is no more a nuisance than is any other noisy assembly. A jolly or hilarious drinker disturbs the quiet of a neighbourhood no more and no less than does a shouting religious fanatic. An assembly of noisy drinkers is no more and no less a nuisance than is an assembly of shouting religious fanatics. Both of them are nuisances when they disturb the rest and sleep or quiet or neighbours. Even a dog that is given to barking to the disturbance of the sleep or quiet of the neighbourhood is a nuisance. 19. But it is said that for one person to entice another into a vice is a crime. This is preposterous. If any particular act is simply a vice, then a man who entices another to commit it is simply an accomplice in the vice. He evidently commits no crime, because the accomplice can certainly commit no greater offence than the principal. Every person who is sane, compass possessed of reasonable discretion and self-control, is presumed to be mentally competent to judge for himself of all the arguments, pro and con, that may be addressed to him, to persuade him to do any particular act, provided no fraud is employed to deceive him. And if he is persuaded or induced to do the act, his act is then his own, and even though the act proved to be harmful to himself, he cannot complain that the persuasion or arguments to which he yielded his assent were crimes against himself. 
When fraud is practised, the case is, of course, different. If, for example, I offer a man poison, assuring him that it is safe and wholesome drink, and he, on the faith of my assertion, swallows it, my act is a crime. Valenti non fit injuria is a maxim of the law. To the willing, no injury is done. That is, no legal wrong. And every person who is sane, compass mentis, capable of exercising reasonable discretion in judging of the truth or falsehood of the representations or persuasions to which he yields his assent is willing in the view of the law, and takes upon himself the entire responsibility for his acts when no intentional fraud has been practised upon him. This principle, that to the willing no injury is done, has no limit, except in the case of frauds, or of persons not possessed of reasonable discretion for judging in the particular case. If a person possessed of reasonable discretion, and not deceived by fraud, consents to practise the grossest vice, and thereby brings upon himself the greatest moral, physical, or pecuniary sufferings or losses, he cannot allege that he has been legally wronged. To illustrate this principle, take the case of rape. To have carnal knowledge of a woman against her will is the highest crime, next to murder, that can be committed against her. But to have carnal knowledge of her with her consent is no crime, but at most a vice. And it is usually holden that a female child of no more than ten years of age has such reasonable discretion that her consent, even though procured by rewards or promise of reward, is sufficient to convert the act which would otherwise be a high crime into a simple act of vice. Footnote. The Statute Book of Massachusetts makes ten years the age at which a female child is supposed to have discretion enough to part with her virtue. But the same Statute Book holds that no person, man or woman of any age or any degree of wisdom or experience, has discretion enough to be trusted to buy and drink a glass of spirits on his or her own judgment. What an illustration of the legislative wisdom of Massachusetts. End of footnote. We see the same principle in the case of prize-fighters. If I but lay one of my fingers upon another man's person against his will, no matter how lightly, and no matter how little practical injury is done, the act is a crime. But if two men agree to go out and pound each other's faces to a jelly, it is no crime, but only a vice. Even duels have not generally been considered crimes, because each man's life is his own, and the parties agree that each may take the other's life, if he can, by the use of such weapons as are agreed upon, and in conformity with certain rules that are also mutually assented to. And this is a correct view of the matter, unless it can be said, as it probably cannot, that anger is madness, that so far deprives men of their reason as to make them incapable of reasonable discretion. Gambling is another illustration of the principle that to the willing no injury is done. If I take but a single cent of a man's property without his consent, the act is a crime. But if two men, who are compass mentis, possessed of reasonable discretion to judge of the nature and probable results of their act, sit down together and each voluntary stakes his money against the money of another on the turn of a die, and one of them loses his whole estate, however large that may be, 
It is no crime, but only a vice. It is not a crime even to assist a person to commit suicide if he be in possession of his reason. It is a somewhat common idea that suicide is, of itself, conclusive evidence of insanity. But although it may ordinarily be a very strong evidence of insanity, it is by no means conclusive in all cases. Many persons, in undoubted possession of their reason, have committed suicide to escape the shame of a public exposure for their crimes, or to avoid some other great calamity. Suicide in these cases may not have been the highest wisdom, but it was certainly not proof of any lack of reasonable discretion. Footnote. Cato committed suicide to avoid falling into the hands of Caesar. Whoever suspected that he was insane? Brutus did the same. Colt committed suicide only an hour or so before he was to be hanged. He did it to avoid bringing upon his name and his family the disgrace of having it said that he was hanged. This, whether a really wise act or not, was clearly an act within reasonable discretion. Does anyone suppose that the person who furnished him with the necessary instrument was a criminal? End of footnote. And being within the limits of reasonable discretion, it was no crime for any other persons to aid it, either by furnishing the instrument or otherwise. And if in such cases it be no crime to aid a suicide, how absurd to say that it is a crime to aid him in some act that is really pleasurable, and which a large portion of mankind have believed to be useful. 20. But some persons are in the habit of saying that the use of spiritous liquors is the great source of crime, that it fills our prisons with criminals, and that this is reason enough for prohibiting the sale of them. Those who say this, if they talk seriously, talk blindly and foolishly. They evidently mean to be understood as saying that a very large percentage of all the crimes that are committed among men are committed by persons whose criminal passions are excited at the time by the use of liquors and in consequence of the use of liquors. This idea is utterly preposterous. In the first place, the great crimes committed in the world are mostly prompted by avarice and ambition. The greatest of all crimes are the wars that are carried on by governments to plunder, enslave and destroy mankind. The next greatest crimes permitted in the world are equally prompted by avarice and ambition, and are committed not on sudden passion, but by men of calculation, who keep their heads cool and clear, and have no thought whatever of going to prison for them. They are committed not so much by men who violate the laws, as by men who, either by themselves or their instruments, make the laws, by men who have combined to usurp arbitrary power and to maintain it by force and fraud, and whose purpose in usurping and maintaining it is by unjust and unequal legislation to secure for themselves such advantages as monopolies as will enable them to control and exhort the labour and properties of other men, and thus impoverish them in order to minister to their own wealth and aggrandisement. Footnote. An illustration of this fact is found in England, whose government, for a thousand years or more, has been little or nothing else than a band of robbers, who have conspired to monopolise the land, and as far as possible all other wealth. 
These conspirators, calling themselves kings, nobles, and freeholders, have, by force and fraud, taken to themselves all civil and military power. They keep themselves in power solely by force and fraud, and the corrupt use of their wealth, and they employ their power solely in robbing and enslaving the great body of their own people, and in plundering and enslaving other peoples. And the world has been, and now is, full of examples substantially similar. And the governments of our own country do not differ so widely from others in this respect as some of us imagine. End of footnote. The robberies and wrongs thus committed by these men in conformity with the laws, that is, their own laws, are as mountains to molehills, compared with the crimes committed by all other criminals in violation of the laws. But thirdly, there are vast numbers of frauds of various kinds committed in the transactions of trade, whose perpetrators, by their coolness and sagacity, evade the operations of the laws. It is only their cool and clear heads that enable them to do so. Men under the excitement of intoxicating drinks are little disposed, and utterly unequal, to the successful practice of these frauds. They are the most incautious, the least successful, the least efficient, and the least to be feared, of all the criminals with whom the law has to deal. Fourthly, the professed burglars, robbers, thieves, forgers, counterfeiters, and swindlers, who prey upon society, are anything but reckless drinkers. Their business is of too dangerous a character to admit of such risk as they would thus incur. Fifthly, the crimes that can be said to be committed under the influence of intoxicating drinks are mostly assaults and batteries, not very numerous, and generally not very aggravating. Some other small crimes, as petty thefts or other small trespasses upon property, are sometimes committed under the influence of drink by feeble-minded persons not generally addicted to crime. The persons who commit these two kinds of crime are but few. They cannot be said to fill our prisons, or if they do, we are to be congratulated that we need so few prisons and so small prisons to hold them. The state of Massachusetts, for example, has a million and a half people. How many of these are now in prison for crimes, not for the vice of intoxication, but for crimes committed against persons or property under the instigation of strong drink? I doubt if there be one in ten thousand, that is, one hundred and fifty in all, and the crimes for which they are in prison are mostly small ones. And I think it will be found that these few men are generally much more to be pitied than punished, for the reason that it was their poverty and misery, rather than any passion for liquor or for crime, that led them to drink, and thus led them to commit their crimes under the influence of drink. The sweeping charge that drink fills our prison with criminals is made, I think, only by those men who know no better than to call a drunkard a criminal, and who have no better foundation for their charge than the shameful fact that we are such brutal and senseless people, that we condemn and punish such weak and unfortunate persons as drunkards as if they were criminals. The legislators who authorise and the judges who practise such atrocities as these are intrinsically criminals, unless their ignorance be such, as it probably is not, as to excuse them. 
and even if they were themselves to be punished as criminals, there would be more reason in our conduct. A police judge in Boston once told me that he was in the habit of disposing of drunkards, by sending them to prison for thirty days, I think, that was the stereotyped sentence, at the rate of one in three minutes, and sometimes more rapidly even than that, thus condemning them as criminals and sending them to prison without mercy and without inquiry into circumstances, for an infirmity that entitled them to compassion and protection instead of punishment. The real criminals in these cases were not the men who went to prison, but the judge and the men behind him who sent them there. I recommend to those persons who are so distressed lest the prisons of Massachusetts be filled with criminals, that they employ some portion at least of their philanthropy in preventing our prisons being filled with persons who are not criminals. I do not remember to have heard that their sympathies have ever been very actively exercised in that direction. On the contrary, they seem to have such a passion for punishing criminals that they care not to inquire particularly whether a candidate for punishment really be a criminal. Such a passion, let me assure them, is much more dangerous one, and one entitled to far less charity both morally and legally, than the passion for strong drink. It seems to be more consonant with the merciless character of these men to send an unfortunate man to prison for drunkenness, and thus crush and degrade and dishearten him and ruin him for life, than it does for them to lift him out of the poverty and misery that caused him to become a drunkard. It is only these persons who have either little capacity or little disposition to enlighten, encourage or aid mankind, that are possessed of this violent passion for governing, commanding, and punishing them. If, instead of standing by and giving their consent and sanction to all the laws by which the weak man is first plundered, oppressed, and disheartened, and then punished as a criminal, they would turn their attention to the duty of defending his rights and improving his condition, and of thus strengthening him and enabling him to stand on his own feet and withstand the temptations that surround him, they would, I think, have little need to talk about laws and prisons for either rum-sellers or rum-drinkers, or even any other class of ordinary criminals. In short, if these men, who are so anxious for the suppression of crime, would suspend for a while their calls upon the government for aid in suppressing the crimes of individuals, and would call upon the people for aid in suppressing the crimes of the government, they would show both their sincerity and good sense in a much stronger light than they do now. When the laws shall all be so just and equitable as to make it possible for all men and women to live honestly and virtuously, and to make themselves comfortable and happy, there will be much fewer occasions than now for charging them with living dishonestly and viciously. End of Part 2